Welcome to Practical Christian Living. If you and I want to see people get saved, then it's not going to be through methods of witnessing. It's not going to be through philosophies of men or worldly wisdom. There's not some secret little phrase out there in order to get people saved. It's going to be by giving the Word of God because it is alive and it is active and it is powerful. The book of Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. When we share what the Bible says with those who need salvation, there is power in our words, strong enough to change and soften even the hardest hearts. With a continuation of 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 25, here's more with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. God gave in his sovereignty, gave men choice. And when men choose not to do godly things, they entered into evil. And God didn't create the evil, but evil is a result of not being holy and not following the Lord. And so that when someone rapes or molests or murders, it's because they have chosen to walk away from God, not because God determined that those things would happen. It's like God is light. So when you invite him into your life, your life is light. When you remove God, there is darkness. Darkness is God being removed. He didn't create darkness. Darkness is the result of God not being there. He didn't create evil. Evil is the result of God not being there. Now, to me, I believe in the sovereignty of God. In other words, if God determines something's going to happen, even in my life, if God determines that something's going to happen in my life, there is nothing that I am going to do to stop that from happening. The Bible says it is appointed once for men to die and then comes judgment. I have an appointment with God. One day, if, if Jesus doesn't come back before I die, I have an appointment with him. And one day I will die and go to be with the Lord. And that's God's sovereignty. He appointed it for me. There's nothing I can do to change it. And all of my free will, all of my choices that I get to make in my life won't change that. So we will, in our free will, choices that we have run into God's sovereignty. God has determined that there is a day when Jesus will return. The Bible says, interestingly enough, that God moved that day forward. Did you know that? There was a time that he wanted Jesus to come back. But the Bible says that unless God had shortened the days, no flesh would remain on the earth. Men would destroy mankind completely. People are afraid today that there'll be a nuclear holocaust or some other kind of maybe disease or, or bio-warfare that'll wipe out all flesh. You know what? It's not an unwarranted fear. It'll happen if God doesn't intervene and come back earlier than what he wanted to. He wanted to be merciful and allow a certain date, but he had to move it forward. But there's a day set by him that Jesus will return. Nothing will change him. Nothing that men do. God in his sovereignty has set that date. There could be personal things in your life, other personal things that God has set up in his sovereignty and, and that can't be changed. But within the realm of your decisions, God allows you to be able to make decisions and sometimes you'll run into the sovereignty of God. That's why the Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. He's not just playing games. Well, I'm going to tell you you've got a choice, but you don't really have a choice. He's not saying whosoever can come, but not really. I'm just kidding. That's not whosoever can come. When God says those things, he means those things because God in his sovereignty allowed man to make a choice. If you say that God is so sovereign that he can't give men choice, and I say that God is so sovereign that he gives men a choice, then God is more sovereign to me than a God that you say can't give men choice. I was talking to someone about this a couple of years ago now. And uh, he said to me, well, then you're making yourself sovereign. What? 
There's, there's some kind of nonsensical arguments that are argued. I know I'm not sovereign. By saying that God in his sovereignty has given me choice, that's not making myself sovereign. I know I'm not sovereign. I can't even get my adult children to do what I want them to do. I can't get my grandchildren to do what, my, what I want them to do. I can't get myself to do what I want myself to do all of the time. I know I'm not sovereign, but I believe that God is sovereign. And I believe that when God makes those decisions, they are set in stone. And when God determines something to happen, it will happen. And so there's two words in chapter one in 1 Peter that are words that are similar, gnosis and gnosko. And gnosis is in verse two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In verse 20 is the other word. He indeed was foreordained before the foundations of the world. And so people want to play on those words, foreordained and foreknown, that God foreordains and God foreknows. The truth is, is that both of these words have nosco in it. The word nosco is to know. Both of them have the idea of God knowing. Yes, God foreordained that Jesus would go to the cross and die for our sins. It's not just foreknowledge. Yes, God knows the decisions that you and I make. And because of that, it says, whom God foreknew, Romans 8, 29, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God knew the decision you would make and God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. It doesn't say that he predestined everything in your life and all of your decisions. It says, he whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So in verse 20, when it says, that he was foreordained, I think that's correct. It was foreordained that Jesus would go to the cross and die for us, but God knew exactly what would happen. God the Father knew exactly what would happen. And it says that this was set up before the foundations of the world and was manifest in these last times. God's determined times, God's sovereignty, like the day that Jesus will return, will one day come to pass. God set a date in the fullness of time when the Messiah would be born. And on that day, the Messiah was born. It will come to pass. He goes on to say in verse 21, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So our, our hope for the future, our trust and our faith and our hope is in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit, and in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. He gets to his next point. We were to be holy as God is holy, and now we're to love in sincerity and love the brethren. Not some kind of sappy, false, cult kind of love. The kind of, hello, brother. Hello, sister. Good to have you here with us. And we go, creepy, right? And that lack of sincere love is identified quickly by the world. People in the world identify that quickly. And, and I believe people in church identify it as well. If you went into church and everybody's walking around with this big grin on your face, smiling at you and saying, hello, brother, welcome. You know, with just this, you'd get out of there pretty quick, wouldn't you? We want to be real. We want to be sincere. We want to have a real joy and a real joy. There's something genuine about it. And there's to be a sincere love. The Bible says that they will know that you are Christians by the love that you have for one another. I believe that the, the brotherly love that we have, the love that we share is our greatest tool in evangelism. 
That when we go out and share Christ or our friends see Christ in us and when they come into this place and they see that we really love each other, that in from the world that they know that we are the disciples of Jesus because they see that genuine and sincere love of the brethren. He goes on to say, love one another fervently, which is fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. And now we get into a passage that speaks of the mechanics of salvation. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This is one of the only verses that I know that deals with the mechanics of salvation. There's a lot of verses that deal with how you're saved. John 1.12, anyone who receives him is given the power to become a child of God to anyone who believes in his name. If you believe in his name and you receive him into your life, then you're going to be made a child of God. The Bible says in Romans 10, all through there, but, but um, 10, say one through eight, it gives an explanation of believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and confessing with your mouth and you being saved. And it says there that if you believe, you will be saved. And again, in that same passage, if you call out upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So the Bible tells us how we are to be saved. The Bible also speaks of enduring to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved. So calling out upon the name of the Lord and believing him, following through and living it until Jesus comes back or until we die is the means by which we are saved. So we are saved by the work of Jesus upon the cross. By believing in him, we receive that work and we end up with salvation. Now, that's only a handful of verses. We could go on to more. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God gave the gift of his son that whoever believes would be saved. But what's the mechanics of salvation? When are we saved and how are we saved? Well, he gives us an idea of it here. He says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. So God's word spoken to us, heard by us, gets into our hearts, and that is what draws us to Christ and changes us. In fact, the, Jesus told the parable of the seed and the hearts, and he said, when it falls upon a good heart, it produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. In other words, if you and I want to see people get saved, it's not going to be through methods of witnessing. It's not going to be through philosophies of men or worldly wisdom. There's not some secret little phrase out there in order to get people saved. It's going to be by giving the word of God because it is alive and it is active and it is powerful. And we are born again by the word of God. If you really want to share with someone, you get an opportunity to share with them, then tell them what the Bible, two things, tell them your testimony and tell them what the Bible says. Uh, Billy Graham is one, was one of the most effective evangelists that there ever has been. Billy Graham and D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday. One of the things that these guys all had in common is they taught what the Bible said. Can you hear Billy Graham saying, the Bible says, the Bible says, call out upon the name of the Lord and he will answer you. And he did it over and over again. There's a strength, there's a power to giving the word of God churches today and it was this way back in the 70s by the way we had a, a song that became popular back then called we got to get back to the bible uh, and today that song is every bit as appropriate as it was then the philosophies of men the trappings of church trying to to win the world in being seeker sensitive is every bit as around as much today as it was back in those days maybe even more we need to get back to the word of god which changes people's lives making our way through the word of god if I told you tonight 
Well, let's just spend some time talking about Robert Furrow's philosophies. These are, these are my own philosophies. As incredible as my personal philosophies are, they're nothing compared to the Word of God. And I don't believe that they're incredible anyway because they really can't transform lives. And if you listen to anybody's philosophies, it can't transform you. And worldly wisdom can't transform you. There's a lot of times when worldly wisdom crosses over into what the Word of God says. And so people will use the Bible to back up their worldly wisdom. They kind of give it some credibility, then they'll move back into worldly wisdom. But worldly wisdom is distinctly separate from the Word of God. Paul, on his missionary journey into Europe, he felt he was called to Macedonia. He had a vision of a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is Europe. So he saw a European who said, come and preach to us. And so Paul left Asia Minor, which is Turkey, and he went over to Europe. He went to Philippi first. From Philippi, he finally made his way to Athens. When he got to Athens, he gave a sermon, a famous sermon on Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was a place where philosophers got together and and philosophized on the different philosophies of their day. Aristotle was talked about there and other philosophies. And uh, Paul put together a message that was perfect for Mars Hill. He talked about the statue of the unknown God and said, I know that God with the statue. He said, even your own philosophers say this. And he quoted their philosophers. At the end of that message that he gave on Mars Hill, It says some believed and some didn't believe. And some said, we'll hear you on another day. Now, in reality, that's probably the response that we always get when we bring a message for God. Some believe, some don't, and some say, eh, maybe later, right? But the interesting thing is that there was no church ever planted and established in Athens that we know of in the days of Paul. We don't have any letters to the church in Athens, and there was not a large church established there. Paul left there and he went to Corinth, And Paul, when he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to them, he says, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with worldly wisdom or the philosophies of men, but I came to you with the power, the word of God, for the word of God is the power of God to salvation. In other words, was he looking back on Athens and thinking, I didn't like bringing this worldly wisdom and this philosophy. Now, now this is debated. There are those that say that we should copy our messages off of his Mars Hill message. And there are those who say, we ought to just get down to the word of God. By the way, I tend to be in that camp. I think that Paul put a message together that was like the worldly messages that were given. And although it contained the truth in the word of God, there wasn't a strong lasting effect. But when he went to Corinth and he came to them with the word of God and says, tells us that the word of God is the power of God to salvation, there were lives that were transformed. And even though that church eventually had problems, (laughs) had a lot of problems, there was a strong church that was planted there. And that's the way that we're born again. We receive the word of God. I believe that that is one of the reasons that Calvary Chapel overall has been so successful. I don't mean just Calvary Chapel of Tucson, by the way. I mean Calvary Chapel overall. Pastor Chuck tells the story, and if you heard this, then bear with me while I tell it. Uh, Pastor Chuck tells the story of being in the Foursquare Church, traveling from place to place because they moved their pastors around a lot, and having about two years of sermons. And for about 17 years... In the late 60s, he had not really been successful in pastoring. He himself said that he would take a church of 500 and bring it down to a solid 250. Just never really had success. And when he would run out of those couple of years worth of sermons, he'd move on to another place because that's when they would move him. So he'd start over again. And then he finally went to Huntington Beach. And when he was at Huntington Beach, he started going down and surfing. And when the two years were up, he says that he didn't want to leave because he wanted to surf, which I love the fact that Pastor Chuck talks about this great work of God that came in the Jesus movement beginning because of his desire to surf. 
How easy would it be for someone to say, well, I began to seek for God, and God told me I have a great work for you, and I want you to stay in Huntington Beach. Pastor Chuck says, I wanted to serve, so I wanted to stay. So he went through Barnhouse's book on Romans, and he saw, if I take these sections and I cover them, I can go for a couple years in Romans. And he began to teach the word of God through them through the book of Romans, and he noticed something. The people began to grow. They began to grow spiritually. And later on, he would say that he learned that healthy sheep reproduce. Whereas before, he was always trying to beat the sheep. Go out, invite somebody, bring somebody. But once they got the word of God, then it began to change and it began to grow. And the interesting thing is, is that out of all the men that were used in the Jesus movement, there was a lot more than just Pastor Chuck. But out of all the people that were used in the Jesus movement, churches came out and became Calvary chapels. There was a Calvary chapel movement. The funny thing is that Chuck never wanted it. From day one, if you started believing something different than what Calvary Chapel believed, Chuck would just say, his, his saying at pastor's conferences was like, if you don't believe in preaching the word of God, if you want to do something different, go away. Don't go away mad, just go away. Now, that's counterintuitive to a lot of churches today that are trying to establish big church movements. They're church planting organizations for the purpose of being church planting organizations. Calvary Chapel has never been that way. It's never been trying to send out people and trying to plant churches. It's people saying, I believe that I'm called to plant a Calvary Chapel here and there and here and there. And I'm not saying that we're doing it any better than anybody else. I'm simply saying that I think the key, the secret, if there is one of Calvary Chapel, is the teaching through the Bible, line by line, verse by verse. Because it's giving people the word of God every week. And there are a lot of different Calvaries that can believe a lot of different things. In fact, there are some Calvaries today that are not believing in the pre-tribulation rapture, which for years, that was just a big no-no. I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, by the way, because I'm true Calvary. Okay, but I have a friend of mine who's a Calvary Chapel pastor who doesn't, doesn't know what he believes with it, which is never a good thing, by the way. You should know what you believe. But anyway, that's for me to have a conversation with him about and for me not to tell you who it is. Um, but there can be a lot of different beliefs But what makes Calvary Chapel the same across the board is the teaching through the Word of God. Is taking the Word of God and teaching it and explaining it. And I believe that's why so many people get saved. I believe that's why God is in the mode of bringing people to Christ because the Word of God goes out, gets in hearts and changes them. Not every every heart that's touched by the Word of God comes to Christ. Some is stony, some's weedy, some's fallow, hard ground, it just doesn't receive it. But when the Word of God falls upon good ground, it produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so he says, we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then he says, all flesh is as grass and all the glory of men as the flowers of grass, the grass withers. He quotes uh, Isaiah 40 and he says that all men are like grass, meaning that grass eventually withers. You go into spring and grass turns green and it's beautiful. And then you get to the fall and it browns up. And you got to, you know, kill it out and plant rye. At least that's what we do in Tucson, right? But we are like that. There was a prime in our lives when we looked the best, when our mind worked the best, and we withered away from that. Some of you guys might be in your prime now, whatever prime is. I think our society would think it's somewhere in the early 20s. I think probably reality, it's probably somewhere closer to 40. Nevertheless, maybe, yeah, maybe athletically, maybe 30, you know? I mean, if you just look at athletes and when they're in their prime, right? But it all withers. And if you disagree with that, then take a picture of yourself now and look at yourself in two years. Just two years, that's all you need. 
And you'll go, yes, men are like grass and they wither. That's what it says, verse 24, right? Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of men as the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Why would we spend a lot of time talking about human philosophy or worldly wisdom when the word of God abides forever? When it's the real transforming power? It says, now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. And that's how he ends the first chapter. This is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. That word that can transform us and change us and that we can get into our lives. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have, you have preserved your word, as you say in the book of Psalms, from generation to generation. And we believe that it is the word of God that changes and transforms lives. We thank you that you have entrusted us with that word. We wanna be faithful. We wanna be faithful to give your word. Lord, not to, to tell what we think it says, but to find out what it really says. That's our heart, that's our goal, that's our desire. We pray that you would honor that as we desire to know you and walk with you and know your word. Not so that we can know what the Bible says, but so that we can know you that is revealed, the one who is revealed in the pages of Scripture. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed for just a couple of minutes. I'd also like to ask that no one would leave early. We're almost done. We'll dismiss you here shortly. But I want to give you a chance, if you're here today, of receiving Jesus, of inviting him into your life. I had talked about the way we are saved in the middle of our study. You're not saved by raising your hand. You're not saved by praying a prayer. You're not saved by going forward at an altar call. But you're saved when you believe. And because you believe, you raise your hand. Because you believe, you go forward at an altar call. Because you believe, you pray a prayer. What is it that you believe? You believe that Jesus paid the price for you. That he went to that cross and that he shed his blood. And that your sins can be forgiven if you receive him. If you invite him into your life. You have to have a personal moment with him. Going to church isn't enough. Maybe you've started to go to church here recently because you want to be a Christian. Well, it's good that you're here, but know that going to church can't save you because no church ever shed its blood for you. No church ever died for you. But it has to be a personal thing with Jesus. It's not about Calvary Chapel. It's not about Calvary Tucson. It's not about growing Calvary Tucson. It's about you entering into a relationship with the living God that gives you eternity. And if you're here today and you want to invite Christ into your life, if you hear him knocking at the door of your heart and you want to open that door and let him in, then I'm going to ask you to do something simple. Right where you are now, lift your hand up. Lift it up now and lift it up high so I can see it. I want to take time to acknowledge your hands. God bless you, ma'am, in the back. God bless you there, the girl with her hand raised right here in the front, young man there. That's awesome. Anyone else? God bless you, ma'am and sir, right by the aisle. That's great. God bless you back by the window. That's great. All right. You can put your hands down. And I would like everyone, including those who raised their hands to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I have sinned. And I know my sin has separated me from you. I also understand that I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus upon the cross. So I invite you into my life and I turn from my sin that I can follow you 
in the name of Jesus, amen. Welcome to the family of God. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.